0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. (laughs) Welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile cases and under-the-radar cases from around the country every week. We are recording this... On April 29th, 2020, I am Anna Garcia. And as you can see, we are recording this podcast under the Safer at Home Guidelines. Welcome again to my kitchen. And joining me today is forensic psychologist Dr. Judy Ho. Hi, Judy. Welcome. Hi, Anna. I still do love your kitchen
2: and I still love those flowers and that little kid painting in the back. So cute.
1: Oh, you know what? My son is 21 years old now, and he, <laughs> he's a junior at university in New York. and <laughs> He made that when he was a little kid, and I I love it to death. I can't take it. It hasn't moved in years. It's funny. People think he's never aged. He's like, wait, I'm 21
2: now, guys. That was a long time ago. (laughs) Um, Judy, I understand you've got a new project that you're working on. I do. I have my podcast, Supercharged Life. It's where I interview a lot of people who have been influential, experts, celebrities who have been supercharging their life in different ways. And we get into a lot of stuff. We get into how to supercharge motivation, how to supercharge productivity, mental wellness. But we also really dig into some deeper issues. To like trauma, PTSD, depression, and anxiety, um, so it's available wherever podcasts are. So check it out on Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, or just some of them. But thank you so much for asking about that, Anna.
1: I appreciate it. Okay, that is great, and we wish you great success. We 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 love to hear what everybody's up to, uh, Doctor Judy. We've got uh, two crazy cases as usual. It's never you know the pandemic does not stop the killing. The murders, it just doesn't stop. People people can't help themselves. So the two cases we have this week, a professor has been charged with murdering his wife after blood and secret audio recordings were found. And a U.S. airman has been arrested for murdering a missing Sunday school teacher. Insane. But first, we have a message from one of our sponsors, Audible. Audible. We always love learning about new stories here at True Crime Daily, the podcast, and Audible has become one of the best ways for us to access those stories. I... I am currently listening to The Dutch House by Ann Pratchett, and it is read to me by actor Tom Hanks. And I find it so soothing during this crazy time. Now, another reason that we love Audible is because they are helping all of us through this new normal that we're dealing with. Audible just launched a special website where anyone, anywhere, can stream hundreds of titles completely free without having to be an Audible member. That is really nice. It offers a screen-free experience to look forward to each day. I actually had to turn off the television and just listen to my book on Audible. And most of the titles are, of course, suitable for the whole family to listen to. The stories are available in English, German, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Japanese, and Italian. And all you have to do is go to stories.com audible.com and here at true crime daily the podcast we have an amazing offer for you our listeners every month as an audible member you can get one credit for any title that you like plus you can now download all of audible's original monthly selections at once and you can get access to daily digests from Places like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. You will also have unlimited access to guided wellness programs. We could all use that, including popular sleep programs. Who is not having trouble sleeping right now? This is all helpful for a very stressful time. All you have to do is go to audible.com slash TCD for True Crime Daily or text TCD to 500-500. Once again, just visit audible.com slash TCD or text TCD to 500-500. Our first case is the murder of a Mennonite. A U.S. airman stationed outside of Phoenix, Arizona, has been arrested for kidnapping and murdering a Mennonite Sunday school teacher. Mark Gooch, a 21-year-old Air Force member, was arrested at his home on Luke Air Force Base on April 21st. That's nearly a month after the body of 27-year-old Sasha Krause was found and two months after she disappeared. It's believed that he beat her, he shot her, he hit her over the head, and he stole her underwear before he dumped her body. But she still had the clothes on that she was last seen wearing. So how bizarre is that? I know. It's... um. It's really odd, especially because she was found
2: so far away from where she actually lives, too. So there's just a lot of intentionality here, it seems. But the fact that he would remove her head covering and her underwear, to me, this is just yet another case of power and control and wanting to strip her of her self-respect, even after death.
1: Yeah. uh, In fact, officials said that. Um, You know, Mennonites wear, like, these little lace or knit caps on top of their buns. They usually wear their heads up. It's just usually a small thing like this. That was missing along with her underwear. And, you know, Mennonites... Um, The best way to describe them is that they are a little bit more uh, progressive version of the Amish, if you will. Mm -hmm. They drive, they have electricity, they use computers, they have businesses, but they still keep to themselves. They live a very plain life. Um, They frown on smoking, on alcohol and on being in the military. That is very interesting because of his background. And yet There was also
2: some reports that if you looked at his social media, he does have some distant family members or perhaps people in his social circle who were part of the Mennonite community. And perhaps, who knows, maybe there had been some conflict already, you know, going uh, back and forth between
1: these two groups. And it's interesting because police say they can't figure out what, if any, relationship they had, whether they even knew each other. So, so far, it it, it looks very clear that he left the base and went to this remote area of New Mexico where they have kind of like a little Mennonite compound. Mm -hmm. They have their local businesses, they have their homes, and they're all kind of clustered around the church. So he definitely went out of his way to go there. The question is, did he go there for her? Did he go there because he has an issue with Mennonites? Uh, I really don't know. So let's get into some of the facts of the case and see what we can figure out here. So 27-year-old Sasha Krauss was found dead on February 21st. She actually went missing a month earlier on January 18 in Farmington, New Mexico. Friends say that she left her home at about 8 p.m. to go to the church building to pick up some supplies and some books. She's a Sunday school teacher. So she lived, as we said, in this very small Mennonite community where everything was clustered around Early the next morning, really we're talking about like one in the morning, her co-workers realized that Sasha had never come home, but her car was still in the church parking lot. Okay, so a little bit about Sasha. She is not from this area. She's from Texas. Her family's in Texas, and she moved there about a year and a half ago to join this Mennonite community. Okay, so she doesn't really know a lot of people there. Um, Police and volunteers started searching this remote area immediately looking for any signs of her and there were none police immediately believed that Sasha's disappearance was without question suspicious because she left without a wallet or any ID plus her car was still at the church parking lot. And it's not like the kind of place where you can just like walk down the street and you've got a giant strip mall um, where you can go shopping or do something. Right, right.
2: Yeah. And, you know, this is a very tight knit community. And that's part of the issue behind all of this, too, is that really nobody had known her to have any personal conflicts, any financial issues. And because they are also close knit, they really know each other's personal lives. Well, this was very unusual to them. What? Why is your car in the church parking lot? We don't know where you are. It's not that big of a community. Everybody kind of knows what everybody else is
1: up to. Yes, and she, in addition to working at the Sunday School, she also wrote books, she wrote poetry, and she worked at the local Mennonite Publishing Company. They have like a little um, publishing company there. Now let's talk about how her body was found and what condition it was in. Her body was finally found a month later after she disappeared, and it was 270 miles away, right outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, She was found on February 21st along a forest road just outside Sunset Crater Volcano National park it was very clear when she was found that she had been beaten over the head Mm -hmm. she was found as we said wearing those same clothes but her underwear was missing and her little mennonite lace covering was missing Mm -hmm. so um, she obviously had a horrible death because not only was she beaten she was also shot oh so this was very violent Yes. Um, We don't know if she was sexually assaulted, but I think the fact that her underwear was removed uh, in itself is very violent. It is a violation. Um, There's I, I can't help but think that there has to be something sexual about this. If you take someone's underwear, especially when they are so religiously conservative,
2: Exactly. I can't imagine a situation in which he didn't defile her in some way because again, this idea of stripping her of her self-respect, of her beliefs, of the fact that she's conservative. Um, he must have gotten off on, on doing things to her that obviously she would not agree to and would completely condemn. And when you think about the fact that he beat her over the head and on top of that shot her, you know, beating somebody, that's a very close contact sort of form of torture and murder, right? It's like, there's a lot of adrenaline rush when that's happening as opposed to shooting somebody from a distance. And so it was very personal for him for whatever reason, even if he didn't know her personally, whatever hatred or or any kind of anger that he carried, he took it out on her and on her body.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's so unusual because you don't really hear a lot of crime about Mennonites because yeah. they're such a peaceful people. I I actually I have done an investigation into um, a Mennonite mob that actually was running from wow. Canada through the United States to Mexico, and they are running drugs. Don't laugh. In their cheese wheels, like they they make no. it, they have these cheese wheels, and they would stuff the cheese, um, the inside of the cheese with drugs. And because oh my the police are not like usually looking at the Mennonites, and they do travel a lot to visit their family. So um, yeah, there was a whole organized crime rig, and they were working with the drug cartels. And wow. I. Uh, Oh, it's crazy. And I interviewed the widow of the of one of the drug runners, both of the Mennonites, and she was in the witness protection program. Um, so, you know, they there I, I have a little bit of insight um, based on talking with her and being with her for some time on what it is to be a Mennonite woman and really how restrictive it is. They have their own language. Even when they speak in English, they have a very clear accent Um, And even the words and how they phrase them in English um, is a little different because they really are kind of like stuck in the 15, 1600s. Right. Uh, So that's why this is so perplexing. The fact that someone who lived in a remote area that was pretty safe, that someone from the outside came in to take and murder. It's it's very it's very deliberate is what I keep coming to. Very deliberate. Yes. So. They they have found her. They know what's happened to her, but they still don't know who the killer is. So police are doing more forensics work and they find that there are some security cameras outside of the compound and they find Gooch's vehicle outside of the compound that night when she disappeared. So um, they went straight to him. They say that Mark Gooch drove from Luke Air Force Base outside of Phoenix to that Mennonite encampment because they now have the proof uh, and some other forensic information and evidence which they are not sharing with us. Again, it's unclear how they knew each other. Gooch is apparently from Wisconsin. And like you said, he has some Mennonite relatives, it's believed, that's been reported by local television and on Facebook. So, I mean, what I don't know. I don't this one is quite a mystery and the community is really in, in shock because for the first month or two, they thought that there was um, a random killer. Right. Um, And people get more scared when a, when a act of violence is random because that means it could happen to them when they hear that it's between, let's say in a love triangle or people who are married or in a relationship, then everybody else does feels like it doesn't affect them. Right. That there, there's no risk. So with this one, I mean, he's been caught. He's been arrested. Um, he's being held on, I believe it's $2 million bond. I know that they keep trying to change that from $1 to $2 million. He is considered a flight risk, and he has no known criminal history. And he's been charged with kidnapping, murder, and theft. The theft is for taking her um, lace cap and for her underwear. My goodness.
2: You know, I I can't imagine what this community is feeling right now, because for all intents and purposes, there still has not been a relationship established between Mark and the victim. And so in some ways it it is still feeling very random to them. What if somebody else decides to come do this again? You know, some kind of copycat crime, which we've seen sometimes in history. And I can't Also help but think about the fact that Mark has some special knowledge, right? Because he is this highly trained first class airman. Uh, Even though he has no prior criminal history, I just wonder how he utilized some of his special training, which is supposed to be used for good, but in this case, perhaps used to be on the run to escape being caught. Luckily, because this community is so tight-knit, the fact that there's this one car there and there's no other cars that would not be identified, it's just too easy, you know, that the police were able to track it down. But but I
1: do wonder how long he was able to keep a
2: lot of things up because of his special knowledge.
1: And I, I thought that, you know, when you're in the military and you get to this very high-level place, right, when you're working... Um, in the military, I know even though he's young, don't they go through all sorts of psychological uh, testing and analysis? Now, I know we have had many incidents in this country of people associated with the military who are currently enlisted and there have been all sorts of um, issues with violence and mass shootings. I I understand that. Um, But I thought, don't they go through psychological testing before you are given the keys to some massive aircraft?
2: So not always in the way that we would hope. Um, The evaluation process is not fully standardized and it's also pretty, I would say, kind of skimming off the top. And sometimes the system is reactive in that when an incident happens, then they go and they pursue a deeper psychological analysis. But sometimes the incidents can be very severe. And then on other times, they can actually appeal the internal evaluation. So it's, It's their right to go and get a secondary opinion, bring somebody out from the outside. And that second person who they're paying out of their own pocket could help to shape their evaluation in such a way that could get them re-enlisted or back in good standing. So it's definitely not a perfect system. I wish we could have a better system. But honestly, Anna, I have seen some really, really terrible uh, evaluations coming out of people who work in these high levels in the government.
1: Uh. That's not very comforting. Um, yeah. Thanks for your insight on that one. And we'll keep you posted on any developments and, and figuring out how, how and why.
0: Yeah.
1: Our second case is about how some secret audio tapes may very well reveal a potential killer in a horrible domestic violence situation. So these secret recordings of the missing Kentucky mom tell a frightening tale of domestic abuse. Ella Jackson disappeared on October 20th. She left behind her cell phone, her wallet, her car, her five-year-old son, her dog. I mean, she just like went poof, right? And women always take their things with them. And I, as a mom, I will tell you, you never leave your phone if you're not with your child, because of what if, God forbid, something happens. Right. So that in itself is very unusual. It is believed that the last person who saw Ella alive was her husband, 39 year old Glenn Jackson. But here is what is really bizarre he did not report her missing for two days. Who does that, right? <laughs> He apparently was telling the authorities, well, you know, she left of her own volition. So therefore, I didn't think it was necessary because she made the decision to leave. Well, where do you go without your car, your wallet, your cell phone, your keys? Right. That's she crazy. could have gotten very far.
2: Right. Exactly. So the fact that he would wait two whole days before he even reported her missing and the fact that there have been reports that he didn't really seem that sad didn't seem like he was all that upset and as time wore on especially that he wasn't all that upset
1: very very curious and very suspicious very and apparently um ella has an adult son from a previous marriage and she and her son were always texting every day so when she disappeared of course he was very worried because it was not like his mom not to communicate with him so Right there, you're seeing a difference in behavior, right? None of this is normal. Well, it seems that um, they have finally solved what happened to Ella, partially, not the whole thing, because Ella is still missing. There is still no sign of Ella. Last week on April 24th, this is six months after Ella vanished, her husband was arrested and charged with her murder, even though there is no body. We have no idea where she is. And police departments generally don't like to do that. They will do it if they believe there is an abundance of physical evidence that shows that something horrible happened to the human being. And in this case, we're going to get to that, appears that uh, the finding of some um, a huge amount of Ella's blood in the trunk of her husband's car leads them to believe that Ella is not alive.
2: Well, so it makes a lot of sense that, again, you know, they usually don't, as you were mentioning, they don't like to try to charge people before they have a lot of evidence. But this looks pretty incriminating.
1: And it's almost as if the police started piecing it together from the moment she disappeared. So here you have a mom um, who disappears without any of the things that she needs to continue to be a functioning, communicating mom. That is very suspicious. Then, um... The husband is acting not too concerned, doesn't report her missing, also suspicious. Then when the police start talking to her friends and other family members, they get told a story that paints a picture of a horrendous violent situation that she was allegedly living in. So let's go back through some of these details. So as soon as they started investigating, they start getting these stories and and. Investigators were were told that three days before Ella disappeared, she had gone to visit with an attorney and a domestic violence advocate. So if you are in an abusive relationship and your alleged abuser finds out that you're trying to leave, does that not generally kind of spur another violent eruption? Absolutely, because the abusers,
2: they have to have control over their victims at all times. And if they think that you're trying to regain control, that you're trying to become independent, that you are, you know, daring to leave them, they will a hundred percent put the clamp down even further. And basically they will do so at any cost. And in fact, sadly, a lot of the domestic abuse situations where we see has become fatal it's usually around the time that there's some discovery that either their victim was documenting what was happening or that they were trying to make an escape plan and obviously the documenting and the escape plan that needs to happen so that these people can finally get out but it's just that unfortunately sometimes when the abusers find out that's when things escalate even further
1: so these are triggers yes absolutely Ella's friends told police, as did her ex-husband with uh, whom she still had a very close, friendly relationship with, um, that she had been sending them text messages about what was going on, that she had also told them about horrible experiences. And here's one text message that they showed to police early on in the investigation. Quote, not this is from Ella to one of her friends, not to alarm you badly, but if something happens to me that might look like an accident, don't believe it. OK, so here, you know, now you could look at this and say, oh, my gosh, she's really paranoid. Well, she, <laughs> this is the best saying I've ever heard. It's not really paranoia if they're out to get you.
2: That's right. Yep. She was just being realistic. And sadly, it was like she was prophesizing the her own horrible disaster. She she knew that this day might
1: come. She also told several friends that if anything ever happened to her, it would be because her husband did something to her. But of course, this was not enough information for authorities to do anything quite yet. But as they're building um, the evidence between the text messages, emails, anything else they may have had, this is what triggers the ability to move the investigation forward. So her husband, Glenn, was a professor of English at Eastern Kentucky University. And Ella's allegations against him go back at least to 2015 as far as documentation goes, because remember I said to you she's very friendly with uh, one of her ex-husbands, who is also a professor, by the way. So she reached out to him and said, you know, I'm I'm really worried about what's going on. Um, And that she shared horrible stories with him about what was going on in the house. She said she was so frightened to even leave her bedroom to go to the bathroom or to even go to the kitchen to get a glass of water that she wouldn't leave her bedroom. She also told him that um, one night it was like 3 a.m. in the morning and Glenn, her husband allegedly grabbed her and then just dragged her through the whole house. And according to the sex husband and friends that the, the reason she stayed in this uh, allegedly abusive relationship is because she was worried about her son. She was afraid that he would do something to the boy who was about five years old But she was also afraid that if she left him, somehow he would gain custody and that her son would be left in the hands of this abuser. So, um, do you see that a lot? That, you know, because sometimes the children of mothers who are abused are very angry towards their mothers for not getting them both out of an abusive situation. And then the mothers, You know, their their defense, their argument is it's because I was scared and I was trying to protect you. And that's really hard for a child to understand. It's like, how can you be protecting me if you're letting him abuse me?
2: Yeah. And I will say this, that might help people understand the mentality of somebody who's a victim of domestic abuse. That never happens, that physical abuse without also mental abuse. And so for most of these victims they have been told that they're nothing, that they can't live without this abuser, that there's no way they can be successful and that if they left everything would be taken from them. And imagine if you were told that message every single day and basically perpetually brainwashed into thinking that you were an ineffectual, ineffective, no good person. You might believe that, oh my goodness, my abuser might overpower me even in the court system, that they might be more charming and more effective at communicating than I am. and I might actually lose my kid. You basically essentially believe whatever your abuser is telling you and you lose that sense of self-respect and self-confidence that somebody needs to be able to get out of such a situation like that. And so the the psych Of mental abuse in in many ways is a big part of what keeps these people in these situations. And on top of that, when people are victims of abuse by people who they supposedly loved at one time, they sometimes make justifications and excuses for their abuser. Well, they were just angry, or maybe it was me who did something. There's a lot of self blame, or it was just because he was drinking alcohol. But when he's not drinking, he's a loving person. And by the way, most abusers do have moments of lovingness that's how they keep their victims where they are
1: after police started hearing all these stories and, and gathering this evidence they went and they got a search warrant so they could search the house and search all of the cars that the couple had because remember she didn't take her car he has a car too and then when they searched the home and the cars they hit the jackpot The trunk of his car was filled with blood. They tested the blood, they did DNA testing, and it was Ella's. So, you know, there's a part of me that says, hold on a second. You killed your wife. Let's say that this is what he did, right? He kills his wife, he puts her in the trunk, he disposes of her, but he leaves all the blood in the trunk. Why did you not clean this trunk? Why did you not get rid of the car? I'm not saying police wouldn't have found it, but it's almost like, so let me get this straight. Yeah. Even though we're under quarantine, you're driving around. Well, actually, she disappeared back in October, but it's like you you're driving around with a bloody car truck mm-hmm. for months. Mm hmm. Isn't yeah. that? Was, I mean, besides being stupid. Yeah.
2: Well, you know what? And I feel like sometimes we, we give these uh, criminals a lot of credit. Like, how come you wouldn't do this? Well, maybe they weren't smart enough to have thought about all the angles. And I think sometimes these criminals, you know, as you know, have huge narcissistic tendencies where they think that they don't even they, they're not even going to become a suspect. And in fact, that was his demeanor with the police. He was kind of talking them up, acting like he was very cooperative. And I don't even think he thought that he would be a person of interest in his Head. I don't think this is the brightest tool in the shed and I also think that he just thought that he might outsmart everybody else but to his detriment he clearly did not
1: so there's that damning evidence which is why police police believe that Ella is dead but then as they searched the house and um, her property they found these hidden audio recordings these were audio recordings that Ella made during fights. With her husband that showed without question how abusive he was toward her. Mm -hmm. And while it may not prove murder, it certainly proves an abusive relationship. And also, I'm sure the reason she was gathering um, the these audio recordings was for her to be able to use in court for divorce and custody.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I don't want anybody to feel discouraged if somehow you or somebody you know is in a domestic violence relationship that you shouldn't be making documents, because actually that is one of the advice that the domestic violence hotlines would give you is start to document whether it's writing it down or recording but you have to be so careful about that evidence right because your abuser could find it and it sounds like in the beginning she was very careful even when she was communicating with her ex-husband jason she was careful she would delete all the texts um but then towards the end as her plan started to formulate further it sounded like she became more emboldened and she wasn't quite as careful with her evidence which partially led to her downfall
1: um can you give us some insight into her rather complicated relationships and her previous marriages, hers and also her husband's? It's when, when you peel back the layers of people's lives, it's like, oh, that, yeah. that's interesting.
2: Well, as far as we know, Ella has been married three times and her third husband is the one that has been charged with murder. She sounds like she's been through a lot of trauma from the very early beginnings of her life. In fact, she was oppressed as a child and was actually forced to marry um, an abuser for her
1: very first marriage. It was and an arranged it was an arranged marriage marriage, excuse
0: me.
2: Yes, it was an arranged marriage. And she was forced to marry him, even though he was abusive. And in fact, she fled her native Russia to the Ukraine to escape him. And she was successful. But then the entire time she has been fearful that he might come after her. And it wasn't until that he, this first husband, died during incarceration because he was charged and arrested and Uh, for beating another man to death, that she really felt like she could settle in and, and relax. And she met Jason, her second husband in 2003, and they had this really odd connection because Jason's first wife was murdered. So he was a widow. She was a widow because her first husband, who was an abuser, died while he was imprisoned. And so they bonded over that. But unfortunately, two people who have been through significant trauma, it's very hard to make that romantic relationship work because you bring all your scars in and they weren't able to make it work. But it sounds like they parted on good terms. They wanted to be friends and they have been friends. And he was her confidant through all of this. And Jason posted this really lengthy, heartfelt, really sad to read Facebook post that says that he has known since 2015 that she had been abused by now her third husband who she tried to find a light at the end of the tunnel when they had a kid together six years ago but obviously it continued because in 2015 he was dragging her around the house, like you already said, Anna, that, you know, he was doing all kinds of horrible, defiling things to her. And he, she felt really trapped. She felt like she couldn't leave, even though Jason offered that if you left, I would take care of you financially and and whatever you need, I I'll give you a place to say she, she just couldn't find the courage. And it's not, it's not uncommon. Unfortunately, Anna, on the average, it takes women who are in battered relationships. Seven Attempts before they're actually able to leave their abuser.
1: That is so frightening, so frightening. And it's especially sad when you consider she was this close, right? She was this close to getting away and getting away safely. But I've always believed that um, if you are in an extremely abusive relationship and the, the person who is absolutely obsessed with you, that, you know, they can be so... So dogged at trying to find you hunt you down. And sadly, I've seen so many of these cases where they got away, they thought they were safe and bam, he found her and he and he killed her, um, which is so troubling. So and you, troubling.
2: And when you think about these people who have been abused and have been in trauma all their lives, they, they feel powerless overall. You know, they're, they're just not going to feel like they're going to be able to ever escape that situation. I think, Anna, they don't even know what's a good situation and what's not. Right. Mm-hmm. Assuming that her second mm-hmm. husband was actually a very good guy, which it seems like he is. Um I don't know if she even knew that that would be a safe relationship because, you know, your barometer is so off and your, your, your bar for how people should treat you is so low that I can see how this happened to her over time. She's, maybe she just thinks that this is how
1: all relationships work. Oh, that's so sad. Now, Glenn Jackson, this is her husband or current husband, has been arrested and charged with murder, domestic violence and tampering with physical evidence. He's being held without bond. And so now Ella's ex-husband, Jason, who you mentioned, the husband number two, the confidant, he has apparently received guardianship Mm -hmm. of the Jackson's little boy who in from the time his mother disappeared until his father was arrested for the murder of his mother he had a birthday he went from five to six years old which just breaks my heart when you think of um you know this milestone in your life you're just a little boy your mom's missing and now your father's been arrested for killing your mom and all of the violence that he has probably witnessed Oh, that poor little boy. Yep. So Judy, as you explained, Jason, the second husband, had a you know, a great relationship with Ella and he was really her main confidant and, and helping with this escape plan. So when she disappeared, he told the police all that was going on and what, what was happening in her life, and he really wanted to start publicly talking about how allegedly abusive Glenn was. But the police asked him not to because they had the husband under surveillance and they didn't want him to be tipped off that anyone knew about the alleged abuse right
2: and it makes a lot of sense because as we've seen the husband was not careful in covering his tracks he kind of was just going about his day with Apparently, a ton of blood in his trunk and not even doing anything about it. And so can you imagine if Jason did post it earlier and he thought about it and went and started cleaning up his trunk and took away all the evidence that the police needed. So it makes sense, but I'm sure it just broke Jason's heart because ultimately she has to be the one to leave. And he was obviously very supportive of her, but I'm sure that there's a part of him that blames himself What if I could have done more? Could I have prevented this? And by the way, for Jason, how traumatic. This is his second wife that has been murdered now. I just don't know how somebody comes back from that.
1: You mean his second, not only is she his second wife, but she is... He's had two wives murdered, is what you're saying,
2: right, yep, so it's like, okay, anybody I marry gets murdered, you know I mean, how does somebody live with that? It is so, so difficult and and again, you know, no knowing that she has been through abuse for the last five years, um and it's somebody that he obviously deeply cares about and loves it it is so sad, and yet it is a common story that domestic violence does progress over time. You know, it doesn't usually get better unless the abuser really recognizes their own shortcomings and wants to go to therapy and wants to do things about it. But in general, we don't see that. So the longer you stay in a domestically violent relationship, your risk of fatality uh, 100% increases.
1: Well, let's hope that their son has the opportunity of being surrounded by love yes. and by people who are capable of helping him with therapy and and everything possible to support him, to hopefully um, have him you know live as normal life as possible and help him you know process this tragedy.
2: Yeah, I hope so, too. And, you know, people can come back from this. Children can be very resilient, but it's all about really rebuilding healthy relationships and hopefully healthy attachment figures, people who he can really be around that can model for him that positive positive relationships are possible and that relationships don't involve abuse, you know, because, again, for this child, if that's all he's seen, he may have a very warped view about how people relate to one another.
1: Thank you. It's time for our comments section. Um, We've got some crazy crime stories here. A video goes viral, and it shows a large house party in Chicago, and this is happening during the COVID-19 pandemic. This video went viral on social media, reportedly showing people attending a really, really crowded house party. I mean, like they're literally on top of each other and in violation of the stay-at-home order. It was posted on Facebook and everyone went, you know, crazy, ballistic, angry over this. But here's the thing, that the police were not able to verify that this was actually a current ongoing situation Or maybe it was old video that people were posting to, you know, as a prank or just for fun. So that's why no one's been arrested in this crime. But it certainly got everybody going and and going, you know, nuts over it.
2: Yeah, it. You know what? I. I mean, again, it wouldn't surprise me because we have been hearing about people breaking the social distancing directives and even the wave of protests that we've been seeing in the last week or two. So it's not. It's not totally inconceivable that this could be happening now, Anna. But at the same time, um, if it is a prank, this is not the time,
1: right? Yeah. <laughs> no. No. Anything <laughs> having to do with coronavirus, there's just no humor about it right nope, now. Nope. No. No. <laughs> Uh, So these are the comments to this video that we posted. Maria L. writes, too bad they weren't caught during the party. They should have been barricaded in there all together until this is over. Can you imagine? (laughs) All right, fine. We're trapping you in together. You like it now, Corona people? (laughs) That's right. Learn your lesson. (laughs) Uh, she, She continued to write, that way people outside of those walls weren't put at risk and they would be forced to live with their choice and to live together with that choice. Uh, Kira G writes, if any of them can be directly linked to a person who dies from corona complications, they should be charged with manslaughter because it's really scary. People are dying of coronavirus. Yeah. yeah. And then Nicholas B writes, good thing. I'm an introvert who enjoys solitude. This is my time to shine. LOL. Ah. Uh, Judy, are there people who. Um, in some weird way because of their tendencies that they like to nest in place that actually are, are doing okay in this situation. Yeah, I
2: actually do think that there are certain personality traits or just, you know, ways in which you enjoy spending your off time that some people actually revel in this. Maybe they're a little bit different from you and I, Anna, because we were just talking before about how, yeah, it can be a struggle to work from home and and be in one place, you know, and I don't know if that's the case for everyone. I think some people
1: are kind of liking this new alternate reality. (laughs) Yeah, not me. (laughs) Here's our next crime. Deputies respond to a sign that says, help, get me out of here. The sign was in the window and uh, of a little girl's bedroom window. So, of course, that's really, really scary. Well, turns out the help was a cry for help for her homework or she was struggling. I know. Not so funny. But, you know, when you're dealing with kids, they they have a different sense of the world, right? They're, you know. (laughs) Okay. So that sign that said, help, get me out of here, alarmed Florida deputies. And it turned out that this little girl needed help with her math homework. A maintenance worker in a North Naples community noticed the sign in an apartment window. And that's, of course, when he called the police. Deputies arrived from the Collier County Sheriff's Department, and they learned that the 10-year-old the little girl's mother had sent her to her room to finish her assignment because, you know, all schools are closed and every kid is, you know, attending class online. It is not only stressful for the kids, but it is stressful for the parents. So this is how the deputies handled it. I mean, this guy must be a a therapist or was a psychology major. So instead of like arresting anyone, giving a citation or a warning, He gave the little girl his personal cell phone number and said, anytime that you need help with your homework, you call me and I will help you.
2: Oh, my gosh. Um (laughs) Uh, I. I saw the picture of this though, Anna, and it this picture looks kind of creepy. You know, it's this sign from like a barely lit window. The window looks really dark if you're looking from it from the outside and it's got huge block letters like help. So it doesn't look like it's just about homework. I can see. And again, you know, especially with so much coverage of true crime. Now we're all much more aware, um, you know, you're, you might really be worried about a little kid and then what's going on. But yeah, that picture is actually scary looking.
1: Oh, it really is. I just am very impressed with how the deputy handled this. Right. Yeah. Because not only did he uh, diffuse the situation, but he came up with a solution. And also, you know, instead of you know that the little girl is embarrassed, you know, she's even if she didn't get into trouble, she knows that she's in trouble. Right. That she did something wrong. She she's she's getting this. But the fact that it was met with such support and kindness, basically saying, look, this is hard for all of us. Let me help you. And, and really what he's doing is throwing a lifeline to the mother, who's probably like up to here with the homework you know? yeah. yeah, and kind of, you know, just inserting a, a little lifeline. So I'm just really impressed. I'm just like, it's these little acts of kindness that help us get through this.
2: Mess. I love it. And yeah, like you said, you know, I wish all police officers could be so psychologically aware.
1: Right. <laughs> so these are the comments. Wave H writes, what if she really needs help? but was scared to admit it in front of her parents. Or what if her parents made that excuse and she went along with it because she's scared, which actually is a very smart comment, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, again, we've seen this before where parents will threaten their children to tell a different version of a story if there really is something horrible going on in the
1: house. Right. We we don't believe that that was the case here, but it is yeah. very, very... Um, astute observation that you always have to be prepared that things are not as they seem. And then Aisha P writes, my mother would have whooped my butt. Oh, I'm sure my mother would have been very upset with me. Yeah. (laughs) Uh. Uh. All right. So our final crime story in the comment section, a North Carolina woman poses as an FBI agent online. And this is for a dating site. She gets three years in prison because she's pretending to be an FBI agent. Mm. This one, oh, this is crazy. Okay, so a North Carolina woman has been sentenced to three years in prison for impersonating an FBI agent on an online dating site. And also when she went on the date and she was also in possession of a firearm because she's a convicted felon. She's not supposed to have the firearm. So the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of North Carolina said Thursday that Rain Brownlee posed in a photo, this is for a dating profile, and she had a fake FBI badge and a gun. And if you saw the photos, I mean, they're hilarious. She's standing to the side, she's got her badge on. Oh, wow. You know, she's got the gun on the holster on her pants. She's got, like, three different photos that she took, you know, selfies in the mirror, and then she had a separate photo of her badge. Okay, well, first of all, you... You can't do that if you're an FBI agent. But right. here's the best. But here's the best part. When she went on that date with the guy, she told him that she was an undercover agent. She, oh. It, yeah. Oh, this is too much. She went on a date in February of 2019, and she tells her date that she's working as an undercover agent on a drug case, and um, she uses the pseudonym's Alexandria Mancini. And according to the Charlotte Observer, she has a prior felony conviction, which includes identity theft. Really? (laughs) (laughs) And on top of it, authorities say that 39 year old Brownlee was also driving a stolen car when she was arrested. So this ain't her first rodeo. Uh, Yeah. She sounds like she really
2: gets off on living out these uh, imagined uh, identities. I think she's been watching too much like born identity or like movies like that, where people are just like on the run, undercover, believing that she's living this life. But yeah, you're right. And then the person who went on the date with her too, like if you're undercover, are you really supposed to talk about it on a first date too? You know, that just seems really, really Mm. odd.
1: No, the the photos are just, they're just, it's too much. The photos are too much. And I, I, you know, I'm really curious. Okay, so she did have this one date. I'm really curious what the reaction was on the dating website to her. It's like, I mean, I would think most guys would either be incredibly intrigued by this badass FBI agent, mm-hmm. or they'd be like, oh, something's not right here. Yeah, I mean, she went through some real
2: uh, great lengths to create these fake, uh, badges, got the gun, she's got photos with them all arranged very nicely. And then of her from the side with her holster. I mean, it's crazy. I just, I don't know how much she's getting off on doing this. I mean, I can, can you imagine she just wakes up in the morning and she's like, yes, today's going to be my fake photo day for my dating profile. You know, it's
1: <laughs> really weird. Well, let's face it. People do lie on their dating profiles. They're always a shorter, older and fatter. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I will tell you
2: some stories. When I was on a, when I was single, I did use dating uh, websites a couple of months and uh, I was definitely catfished a couple of times where somebody showed up and I was like, I'm sorry, are you the dad of the person who I'm supposed to meet? You know, like 30 years older than the pictures that they, it's, it's insane, Anna. So luckily, I always only met them in like public coffee shops and like, it was like, okay, goodbye, you know?
1: Oh, no. Me, too. Had the same problems. I, I remember ah. there, there was one guy. I, 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 he came up from behind me because, you know, we're meeting outside a coffee shop. So and he said he was a certain height. So mm. I and I'm not exaggerating. So he's coming up from behind me right over here. I hear him calling and I turn my head like this. And then I go like this. Oh, my gosh. Right, because you have a certain expectation if
2: somebody says I'm 5'9 or 5'10 and actually they're 5'3. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but just be honest, right? Just be honest, people. So we know what to expect and how to turn our
1: head. And I said to him, boy, you look different than your photo. And he said to me, you know, people tell me that all the time. I'm like... I." He said it in such an innocent way. It's like, dude, this is deliberate,
2: right? Oh, talk about intentional. My goodness. I mean, you you know how tall you are. Everybody knows how tall they are. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, sorry for that
1: little tangent yeah, little aside. Yep. we, we made our own side. we made our own comments on this one. I think we did. So now let's read the real comments. D writes: Would you ever pose on social media with your badge in sight? If you are undercover, duh, of course not. And Steffi L writes three years for all of that. This is not her first can. I have the name of her lawyer. (laughs) And then Hannah L writes, is it that hard to find a date these days? Well, yes, but this is what I'm telling you. You know, the person who still
2: went on the date with her too is (laughs) like, oh my gosh, you know, I hit the jackpot. She's an FBI agent, but then I'm, I'm sure you piece it together. Like, wait a minute. Why are you talking about your undercover assignment with me on the first date when I don't even know you? So mm, but as you I know say, what? red flags,
1: ding, 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 red flags. Well, that's it for our show. I have to tell you, Dr. Judy, thank you for giving me a good laugh because <laughs> <laughs> I've been in, in sore need of some diversion and laughter. And cause I have to tell you, you know, I feel like, I don't know, what are we on week five or six of yes. this, this lockdown, it's really getting to me. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's hard. It's hard to not feel like you can go outside um, at will and not to be able to have your routine because routines do keep us healthy and it's harder to keep, a routine when you're in your house all day long. So I I completely understand, Anna. And and you're right. I mean, it's so important for us to still laugh, to still have fun, to find a way to make our home our playground, even though you're sick of your home now, and and to try our best to see the silver linings of all of this. I mean, I, I hope that the more we all cooperate, the sooner we can start seeing progress and and, and making movement forward. But for now, I think really all of us just needs to focus on our mindset, you know, because our mindset can be changed, whatever situation you're in. And I really just try to start my day with gratitude when I wake up, and I don't have any symptoms. I'm like, okay, good, still healthy. I think, um, and just wake up and say three things out loud or write in the journal three small things that you're appreciative of, and I think that does set your mind um, in the right way to start your day.
1: Thank you, and I am appreciative of you, Dr. Judy Ho. Thank you, I you so appreciate much. You, thank you, Ada. <laughs> We're so glad you could join us and good luck with your podcast. It sounds fabulous. All right, so that's our show. And as always, you know that you can find our content wherever you get your podcast: Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and of course on YouTube. And to get updates, please subscribe to our newsletter at TrueCrimeDaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime.